Hello, and welcome to this special episode of Wealth Planning Illuminated. I'm your host, Teresa Marks, a senior wealth strategist at CIBC Private Wealth in the U.S. I am joined today by my colleague, Caroline Mackay, also a senior wealth strategist at CIBC Private Wealth. In this episode, Caroline and I discuss how rising interest rates may impact certain wealth planning strategies and how locking in historically lower interest rates today may allow for more wealth to be transferred in the future. All right, let's get started. We've been hearing a lot of the news lately about rising interest rates. We typically are hearing about them in the context of the investment markets, inflation, and those types of issues. Rising interest rates can also impact estate planning strategies and those strategies that we might be considering as we're talking to our clients. So first, I think we need to kind of level set, what are the interest rates we're thinking about when we're thinking about different wealth planning opportunities? That's a great place to start. So normally when we colloquially think about interest rates, people are thinking about their mortgage rates or they're thinking about, you know, just general lending from a bank. One of the advantages of using interest rates with estate planning techniques is that the interest rates that we use in estate planning are often lower than these commercially available rates. So there are two primary rates that we use in estate planning in in most situations. One is known as the applicable federal rate, and the other is known as the Section 7520 rate. Both of these rates are uh, published by the IRS every month, so they're redetermined fairly regularly. And the applicable federal rate is typically issued at three different levels, the levels being a short-term rate, which typically governs uh, loans and arrangements that last between zero and three years, a midterm rate which governs arrangements between four and nine years, and then a long-term rate, which is used for techniques or loans that are going to be outstanding longer than nine years. And then a 7520 rate is a different type of rate. It is also based off of these applicable federal rates, uh, but that is a rate that's used in common estate planning strategies like a GRAT or a a charitable remainder trust, for example. So these rates are issued by the IRS and are the minimum rates that have to be used under many estate planning techniques so that there isn't additional gift tax charged or deemed to apply, or in some cases with a GRAT or a charitable remainder trust, the 7520 rate is the required rate, minimum rate in order for those techniques to be respected by the IRS. Okay. So, so even though they're a little bit different than what we might be seeing commercially or what we're seeing that, you know, the Federal Reserve publishing, um, they, they are essentially related, right? So when we see those other rates going up, we can generally assume that probably the applicable federal rate, or as we sometimes call it, the AFR um, and the 7520 rate are also starting to go up. Is that, is that fair assumption? Absolutely. So as we see interest rates in general going up, we will start to see the the AFR and the 7520 rates also increase. What's important to note, though, again, it it, it doesn't it's not a, a definitive, but these rates tend to lag behind commercially available rates, you know, tend to be a bit lower. And when we're looking historically at AFR and 7520 rates, which go back, you know, starting in the 80s, we are still in a very low 
uh, interest rate environment as it pertains to the applicable federal rate in the 75-20 rate. So interest rates are certainly on the rise, as are the applicable federal rate and the 75-20 rate. But it's still important to remind ourselves that these rates are still very low when we look at the history, when we go back in history. Uh, and that's what we want to leverage is these low rates, especially as we go into an increasing interest rate environment. OK, so there are there, even though. Um we're going up, they are still historically low. So given the fact that they're historically low and that, you know, we might see them start to tick up even more, are there some planning strategies we should be thinking about for, you know, for our clients or that, you know, people should be thinking about kind of locking in these rates before they get higher? Yes. So sort of the common estate planning techniques that we see clients using that leverage these these low interest rates and really benefit the most from these lower interest rates include a grantor retained annuity trust, which I mentioned a bit earlier when talking about the section 7520 rate, uh, installment sales to grantor trusts, intrafamily loans, and then something known as a charitable lead trust, which is a version of a split interest trust that you know benefits charity to an extent and the grantor's family to an extent. Okay. So maybe we could start with um, a grantor retained annuity trust or a GRAT um, and maybe walk us through, you know, one, how it works and, and how that interest rate impacts the use of a GRAT. Sure. So a grantor retained annuity trust or a GRAT is a type of irrevocable trust where the grantor, so the person who is creating the trust, makes a gift of property into trust while retaining a right to receive an annual payment, which is often referred to as an annuity, hence the name, uh, for a specified number of years. So the property goes in, the grantor retains the right to these annual payments, and then at the end of the grant term, whatever remains in trust, also known as the remainder, passes on to the trust's beneficiaries. And the reason that interest rates play a role in this technique is that the value of that remainder interest that will pass on to the beneficiaries is determined at the beginning when the trust is first funded, and it's based on that 75-20 rate. So for example, and I'm just throwing numbers out there, they're not necessarily the right numbers. If the 75-20 rate today is, let's say, 1%, all right, and I put assets into trust and retain a right to receive back an annuity, to the extent that essentially my assets in trust appreciate higher than the 75-20 rate, then it is likely that there will be a remainder to this trust and that remainder passes on to my beneficiaries. The value of that remainder for gift tax purposes, again, is determined by the rate. In most situations that we're seeing these days, the, the way the GRAT is designed is that uh, the grantor of the trust, the person who funds it, takes back an annuity interest equal to the fair market value of the assets that were first contributed. So again, if I'm putting, let's say, a million dollars into a trust based on a 1% 75-20 rate, I'm going to receive back a certain payment that will deem me to have completely exhausted the trust over the period of years that I've set out in that graph. The hope would be, though, is that the assets in the trust 
appreciated, let's say, at 5% or 10%. And thus, even though I have, under this calculation by the IRS, in theory, exhausted the trust, there's actually potentially a considerable remainder that passes on to my beneficiaries free of any gift taxes. Okay. So so really thinking about it with, with a grant, that 75-20 rate is often what we call the hurdle rate. So if the IRS assumes that my trust, in your example, is only going to earn 1%, to the extent I can get anything above that hurdle rate or that 1%, I'm able to make a gift to my beneficiary. So really the lower that rate is, the less my the less you know we have to do or the assets have to earn in order for us to kind of quote unquote win with this technique exactly so obviously it behooves us to try to create these trusts when that interest rate is as low as possible because it just allows for more success and more remainder to pass on to the beneficiaries that makes a lot of sense. So so you also mentioned the installment sale to a grantor trust, which I often kind of think of almost kind of like the sibling to the grant because they're they're similar in, in terms of what we're trying to accomplish, but but different enough to, to I think, warrant a discussion. So can you walk us through that technique um, and how it works? Yeah, absolutely. So in a very similar situation, an irrevocable trust is created and it is funded by the grantor. Uh, in this case, though, rather than transferring assets into a trust and taking back a, an annuity, uh, in this case, we would be selling assets to the trust and taking back a promissory note. So I think many of the listeners will be more familiar with just loan arrangements, whether it's, again, a, a mortgage arrangement that they have uh, or any type of loan they've taken out. So this promissory note says that the trust has to repay the grantor or the grantor's estate at some point in time in the future. And in order for not, for uh, the IRS to, re to respect this as true debt and not a gift, we have to charge a market rate of interest, uh, just like a bank or anybody would charge if I were to sell them an asset or borrow money from them uh, and they weren't going to repay me immediately for that transfer. In this case, though, the market rate that is typically used is based off of that applicable federal rate, either the short term, midterm or long term, depending on how long we expect that promissory note to be outstanding. And as we've discussed, in many cases, that AFR rate still is is very low. Uh, even lower than potentially commercial rates available. So we get the benefit of any appreciation of the assets after the sale. So if I, once again, sell assets to the trust for a million dollars, and let's say lock in an interest rate of one and a half percent, it doesn't matter what the value of those assets are. I sold it for a million, but let's say by the time the trust has to repay me or my estate, the asset has grown to $3 million. Well, the trust gets the benefit of all that appreciation. And I've frozen the value of that asset in my estate at the $1 million, along with the 1.5% interest in my example. Okay, so similar to the GRAT, so essentially whatever that interest rate is that that the grantor's charging, as long as we, as long as those assets appreciate higher than that one and a half percent in your in your example, we're able to transfer that appreciation out of the grantor's estate and into the into a, a trust for the benefit of the beneficiary. So again, the lower the rate, the more chance we have for success to get more of that appreciation out. 
That's correct. So we're not going to pick an asset that we have no hope of appreciating <laughs> or we expect to depreciate in the future. We're looking to to move assets that we do hope uh, will will gain value in the future uh, to make this as successful as possible. Yeah. And, and I do think it's probably worth just noting with the grantor trust, because the grantor trust is treated as the same income taxpayer as the grantor. The fact that you've sold assets or the grantor has sold assets to the trust, we're not triggering any income tax consequence. So we're able to do the transfer tax planning without actually triggering any sort of income tax burden um, from that sale or even the, the interest and principal payments that are made through the life of the note. Yes, and and that is a very important note because in in almost all other situations, selling an asset to another entity or party would trigger an income tax. So this is a a, a sort of special variation of the law that allows us to remove the asset from the grantor's estate, but still have them essentially responsible for income taxes going forward. So we haven't accelerated or created an income tax event in doing this transfer. Okay. So similar to kind of the sale technique, you know, we've mentioned a lot about loans. So what about an intra-family loan? Um, you know, again, similar to the, the sale, but we don't have the sale component. Maybe we're just loaning money to a family member. So how does that work? And again, kind of what's the benefit currently? Yeah. So, so it, it, if the installment sale to a grant or trust is, you know, the cousin of the grant, the intra-family loan is like the the fraternal twin of the installment <laughs> sale. I mean, it it really instead of selling an asset, you know, we're we're lending we're lending money uh, to a trust to a family member. And again, under the the rules regarding intrafamily transfers, if you don't charge uh, at least a minimum interest rate, the IRS will deem you to have been you know creating a gift some portion of a gift transfer to the family member. So we have to use a minimum rate of interest. We don't want any sort of, of gifting element between the parties. So again, we're using the applicable federal rate, either the short, midterm, or long-term rate, depending on how long that loan is going to be outstanding. So for example, let's say parent wants to lend child uh, a couple hundred thousand dollars in order for a down payment on a house, right? They don't want to just outright gift that today for whatever reason. Uh, and so they may lend that to the child. Well, they can do so and they can then take back a promissory note that says, okay, child, you have to repay me in whatever the term is, 10, 20, 30 years. And they take a promissory note back charging that applicable federal rate. So a minimum interest rate associated with the term of the loan. And, and that allows the parent to not be charged with having made a gift to the child, assuming all the formalities of that promissory note are respected. And, and that can be a huge win, especially for individuals who maybe have used up their um, ability to make you know tax-free gifts using their exemption already, or if they're saving it or using it for other estate planning vehicles. So we often see this as intra-family between individual family members, like I said, parent and child, or maybe that same technique is used between uh, a parent grantor and a trust set up for the kids. The same sort of technique would work in either situation. So again, we're kind of shifting, we're sh shifting appreciation to the extent that the assets are, can appreciate over and above, again, the AFR, uh, that, that we're able to shift appreciation, make a gift really without 
making a taxable gift from from an IRS or you know um, tax rules perspective. Exactly. Yeah. So then, then the, the fourth uh, technique you mentioned, the charitable lead trust. I and mean, this is, this one's a little bit different because here we're talking about having maybe you know a, a charitable intent. So what's this strategy, and how can it help um, with wealth planning? Yeah. So first and foremost, I think it is important to point out that this is for somebody who who does have some charitable inclinations uh, in mind. Uh, It can be used uh, as either an estate planning or potentially an income tax planning strategy. But it is important to know that charity or charity named by the grantor of the trust does receive a benefit from this trust as well. So it's not exclusively benefiting family members. So a charitable lead trust, again, is a form of an irrevocable trust. In this case, it makes an annual payment to a charity every year for the trust's term. And at the end of the trust term, it distributes the remaining assets either back to the grantor, typically if it's designed as a grantor charitable lead trust, or to the grantor's family or trust for their benefit uh, upon termination. That would typically be a non-grantor charitable lead trust. So very similar in many respects to the way a grant would work. The, the grantor transfers property to the trust, and then there's an annuity payment over a term of years. The big difference being that the charity is receiving that annuity payment, not the grantor. And similar to that grant, the value of the charity's interest or you know the remainder interest, depending on how you want to think about it, is determined using that 75-20 rate. And at the end of the trust term, any remaining trust assets pass to the named beneficiaries, either without any additional gift or estate taxes, again, assuming we're using a trust designed as a non-grantor trust, Or in some cases, uh, the charitable lead trust is designed to provide the grantor with an income tax deduction uh, associated with the value of the charitable interest that was created. So I know that's a little bit confusing between I kind of threw in grantor CLTs and non-grantor CLTs together. The important thing to note is that a charitable lead trust has a charity that receives these payment. And in some cases, we use them to, like a grant, move appreciation to the next generation potentially or other family members. And in some situations, we might use a charitable lead trust uh, to provide the grantor with an income tax deduction if, let's say, they have uh, a particular year where they're looking to offset high taxable income. So, but with either one of those, again, and, and I feel like I'm repeating myself, but, you know, again, the the fact that we have lower 75-20 rates than we did, you know, even, you know, 10, 15 years ago, um, that's beneficial to the CLT and the CLT strategy in order to really maximize, uh, you know, what's what we can transfer on or what are the, the income tax deduction that we might have. Absolutely. So all of the scenarios we talked about today or all the techniques really benefit when the interest rate is as low as possible, Right. So we Mm -hmm. may not be at the very bottom of where interest rates have been over the last 10 years or so, but we still are, when we look at a historical perspective, still in a very low interest rate environment. And we do sort of see the writing on the wall with interest rates ticking up. So if anyone is interested in potentially leveraging one of these techniques, now would be the time to certainly try to explore it and lock in some of these rates before they continue to go up. 
Okay, so really, the sooner we can do this type of planning, probably the better um, before those rates go up and those those hurdles essentially then go up and make it a little bit harder to accomplish those wealth planning goals. Correct. And and you know. <laughs> Because, you know, because of what we do and who we are, I think always reminding people to work with qualified, you know, tax advisors as they are exploring these options. You know, we've been hearing a lot, um, not only about interest rates, but also about the potential for legislative changes. So I think we always need to be careful that, you know, some of uh, some of these options might change over time and, you know, their effectiveness might change depending on where the laws go. Um, so, you know, kind of exploring them, but also understanding that, you know, always building in flexibility and making sure that you understand, you know, where where there might be legislative changes and how that might impact the planning that you're doing, I think is always really important as well. 100% agree. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Wealth Planning Illuminated. We hope you found this topic interesting and that you will continue to explore the variety of wealth planning topics available to you on this channel. Thank you and have a great day. CIBC Private Wealth Management includes CIBC National Trust Company, CIBC Delaware Trust Company, CIBC Private Wealth Advisors Incorporated, all of which are wholly owned subsidiaries of CIBC Private Wealth Group LLC and the private banking division of CIBC Bank USA. All of these entities are wholly owned subsidiaries of Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce. This document is intended for informational purposes only, and the material presented should not be construed as an offer or recommendation to buy or sell any security. Concepts expressed are current as of the date of this publication only may change without notice. Such concepts are the opinions of our investment professionals, many of whom are chartered financial analyst charter holders or certified financial planner professionals. Certified Financial Planner Board of Standards Incorporated owns the certification marks CFP and Certified Financial Planner in the U.S. There is no guarantee that these views will come to pass. Past performance does not guarantee future comparable results. The tax information contained herein is general and for informational purposes only. CIBC Private Wealth Management does not provide legal or tax advice, and the information contained herein should only be used in consultation with your legal, accounting, and tax advisors. To the extent that information contained herein is derived from third-party sources, although we believe the sources to be reliable, we cannot guarantee their accuracy. The CIBC logo is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Investment products are not FDIC insured, may lose value, and are not bank guaranteed. 